Socks on 35th is next. Doors open on the left. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, White Sox fans, and welcome to episode 32 of the Socks on 35th podcast. If you're wondering why Duke Coughlin's voice sounds a little bit more high-pitched than usual, it's because I'm Jordan Lazowski, and I'll be your host on this episode. Duke is out this week due to, I assume, mourning over the state of the Chicago Bears. Aren't we all, though? As always, Nick Gower is here to break down the latest in White Sox Nation, and this week we are joined by two special guests, the first being Sox on 35th senior contributor, Tim Moran. Gents, before we go any further... How are we feeling with just six games left to watch? I shouldn't be that excited, but I am. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's it's weird. I mean, I'm actually, I haven't been to a game in probably a month and a half, but I'm going to one of the Padres games just because, like, why not? It's baseball. As annoying as the season has been, I am going to miss it when it's over in, you know, December or January. Maybe not the White stuff specifically, but baseball as a whole. So, yeah, it, it's weird. I mean, the season flew by and it also didn't at the same time. I feel like we always say that, but. This season, especially just given how relatively high the expectations were. I mean, I don't think we all expected, you know, to win the division, but we at least expected a competent team. And we got, I mean, it depends on how the last six games go, but a team that might be the worst White Sox team in the last few decades. And so we'll see how that goes. I'm kind of curious. I've been like, that's like the main reason I'm still paying attention is like, okay, are they going to lose, you know, 102 games, 101 games? Like, I want to see the exact number just because I, I'm just weird, I guess. But yeah, I'm doing all right other than that. <laughs> yeah, uh, similar story. Uh, it's nice to have baseball around. It'll be sad when you know you don't have that that sport that seems to be on almost every day. Something you could tune into, something you could get some entertainment from if you so choose to put yourself through that pain. Um, but uh, yes, yeah, an interesting storyline there. We we'll see, you know, how ugly that final record looks, and um, yeah, some. You know, some guys that Nick and I have heard about that we'll talk about that are still kind of fun to watch, I guess. So we'll see, uh, you know, we'll see how the last six days goes for them. But um, yeah, just uh, pretty sad that, that it's coming to an end. I think the wildest part of it all, and it feels like I say this every season, is that they're going to w- lose like 100 to 102 games probably. And that's still not going to be near enough to get a, a first over. I mean, it's a lottery now, but to have the first overall draft pick in the order. Um, it might not even be enough to get top three for the best lottery odds. It's wild to me that every time it seems like we're here and we want them to lose to hopefully improve things for the future. They just can't even get fully there and do that as well as we'd want them to. It's a, it's a very frustrating point to be at, but Tim, you mentioned at least this first half of this episode is going to be a lot about, you know, we, we tried last week, I know both uh, Nick, you and Duke tried to start thinking about the future, and we're going to continue to do that with some of the players that are currently here on the team. But before we get too far into this episode, make sure to su- subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to your podcasts. And if you'd like, leave us a five-star review that lets Duke know how awesome I am. Also, make sure to follow us at Saxon 35th on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and stay tuned into our website all year at SoxOn35th.com. Now, we're going to start with some news before we get in both of your articles. The news being the Sox making three new front office hires. Josh Barfield, who comes over from the Diamondbacks to be the team's one of their new assistant GMs, 
Brian Bannister, who comes over from the Giants to be the team's senior advisor to pitching, and Gene Watson, who comes over from the Royals to be the team's director of player personnel. Nick, I'll start with you. I mean, just any initial thoughts you have on these hires. There hasn't been a lot that's come out. Um, I, I guess it feels good that these are external hires, right? I, I guess, what are your initial thoughts on these hires? Yeah, I mean, it feels very White Sox in the fact that when I first read about Barfield, because that's the one that leaked out first, that, okay, that seems good. You know, Diamondbacks have a great system. They've had so many prospects graduate to the majors in the last couple of years. Clearly, he played a major role probably in all of them. So that's good. Then Bannister, too, is like, okay, yeah, he's forward-thinking pitching guy from a organization that seems to always just take these random pitchers out of nowhere last couple of years and make them reliable major league arms. Like, okay, good. Then the Royals guy, and this is why I say it's so White Sox, is like, okay, like, I, I can't point to any particular thing that makes me feel good about that one. And then when you factor in that, I mean, I don't want to take Royals fans' words as gospel, but they've all, I've read a lot about them basically saying that he was probably going to be fired after the season anyway. And it, it's just like, I, I want to get excited about the first two, but I'm struggling to because they basically hired what appears to be just like a Pedro Griffol guy. And I know that Griffol is coming back. That was not, like guess I said that a long time ago. But at the same time, this is, it's different from a manager in that this director of player personnel position is probably not the kind of guy you're going to fire after one year if you also fire Griffol. So I'm not really sure what the point is there. But to get to your main question, Jordan, yes, it's good to see the external focus on hires. And I'm a little surprised just because you and I and, and Duke had talked about how um, because of the fact that Guest was named GM rather than president of baseball operations, it might have been harder to poach from other organizations. And these aren't like, you know, I mean, maybe Bannister has a little bit of, you know, a, a recognizable name in part because of his playing career. But they were still able to get guys from other organizations and, you know, give them positions that while maybe not as sexy as GM or, you know, VP of baseball ops or, or whatever it would have been, they're, they're still pretty high up positions. So it's good to see. And I'm, I'm hoping that's not the end. I mean, obviously there are other roles to fill, but I'm hoping in the coming weeks we have similar sort of news dumps like this one. For me, I think it's uh, pretty similar. You know, you, you go with Barfield and Bannister who are, younger minds and Bannister has a good reputation uh, for incorporating sabermetrics and being one of the first guys to do that years ago. Uh, and then Barfield oversaw a very good uh, Diamondbacks system for the past few years. But then, yeah, Gene Watson seems to be just an old school scout with the Royals. And for a while now, the Royals have not had a good farm system. They haven't been able to develop the talent that they seemingly gotten from being very bad for a decade now, essentially, um, post-2016. Um, and, yeah, so it's a little puzzling that, that you know, you would pair some of that, you know, Guts and Bannister and Barfield with uh, an older mind, you know, who, you know, according to Scott Merkin, seems to think a little more old school. Um, you know, y you want to be able to believe that it can work together, but, you know, it's a little interesting seeing those sort of viewpoints potentially clash, but... I like the approach to go outside the organization to bring in several people, you know, a few new people from, from different places. I think that makes some sense, but yeah, you know, time will only tell how well they can actually work together. Um, so we'll see. See, for some reason, the, the Watson thing really doesn't bother me. They just kind of, you knew what was going to happen. 
once they signed on to say, yep, Grafal's staying. Grafal is going to want to bring more of his people in. It's, for better or for worse, sort of an empowerment of Grafal. Um, and I think the director of player personnel is a fine place to kind of shove them and, hey, here's a guy that Grafal likes, let's name him the director of player personnel. Maybe he would have gotten fired from the Royals. It's, for me, it isn't so offensive that I overlook the other two hires. I think Barfield is an awesome, awesome hire from the Diamondbacks. You get someone who knows how to run a minor league system and you put him in the front office. Hopefully he has some sort of idea behind what makes a good director of player development and he helps Getz find that person because they still haven't named who's next for Getz's unfilled position. And Bannister, what that tells me is that likely Ethan Katz is staying. I know Katz has gotten under a lot of fire this year, but Bannister has been very complimentary of uh, Katz in the past on top of the fact that they worked in San Francisco together. I think it's a little bit of faith being placed in the current, for again, for better or for worse, the current staff. It's giving Grafal another one of, quote, his guys, which it happens every time. Managers come over and they bring in people to support them. In the case of Bannister, you get an awesome, awesome baseball mind while also getting someone who's worked with Cats a lot and kind of placing that faith back in Cats, too. Again, time will tell, like you said, Tim, whether or not these were good ideas. But the overarching thing for me is it just it is, yes, it's a it's a Royals hire. Why do you keep hiring from the Royals? I get all of that. For me, it's just not off- offensive enough to where it was literally 0.3 in terms of how I view. I'm like, oh, Barfield, awesome. Bannister, awesome. Gene Watson, sure, whatever. Yeah, I understand that point of view. And just to clarify a bit, I think that for me, it's not so much Watson himself. It's also just kind of like, where does it stop? And we've talked about, we've we've joked about Salvador Perez and Whit Merrifield and whoever else coming to the White Sox next year. I'm still like, I'm not even joking what I say. I think both of those are going to happen, but that's kind of more what it is for me. Duke's not even on this podcast. You are not required to mention Whit Merrifield on this podcast. Duke's not here. Okay. We don't need to talk about this. All right. I'll drop Whit. Continue. Sorry. Honestly, my next article I was thinking might be just like a why the White Sox shouldn't trade for Stavro Perez type article because you would not believe the amount of- an article? Like, no, seriously. They're like like pretty smart White Sox fans that I talk to regularly who are not against it, who, who I talk to about it. And like, I bring it up as a joke and they go, oh, well, he's at least like a good leader or whatever. Like, it's like, okay, sure. But for that contract and for that production at this point in his career, whatever, I'll write about it. But my <laughs> my main point here is that like, that's why I'm upset about Gene Watson. It's not, it's not that he alone is so bad, although I mean, we don't know really how bad or good he is for sure. It's more so that like, where will this Royals affinity end? Because I don't think it ends here. But overall, I do get what you're saying, Jordan. I don't think that we should disc- discount the Barfield and Manister most because they do seem to be objectively pretty good hires. And to be clear, I don't know where that ends either. I just know it's not that unexpected. I-, I don't think it's so much an affinity for Royals people as much as it is Grafol likes his people. Grafol has an affinity for his people, and they happen to be um, from the Royals, obviously. I think that will spell a longer term vision of, you know, questioning should Getz have been empowering a manager who really hasn't proven much yet 
as much as he has. I think that will end up being the larger question surrounding this. Good baseball minds, we've said this a ton, good baseball minds can come from bad organizations. I, I totally get the whole Royals thing, though. It's just not that unexpected for me because it's in, it's empowering a manager who came from Kansas City. That That's where it stems from. It seems almost as if Getz is already potentially a little bit handcuffed with the situation. I don't know how much he feels for Grafal, but it seems like there's pressure to surround him with some of these guys that he wants. Um, and, you, you know, you understand that sentiment, you know, from the perspective that he is coming back and, you know, you do want to be on the same page with him. But, you know, one has to wonder, you know, how much pressure there is on Getz to do something like that, how much pressure he's feeling um, to accommodate this, you know, the manager. And, and if so, if he's going to make, you know, this type of hire, if he's going to um, make an offseason signing or two, right, uh, based off that, that, you know, what happens when the White Sox stink next year, you know, Grafal leaves, well, you know, well, you know, what was this all for, right? But, but yeah, I think Jordan has a point in that. The bigger picture here is that the the two most important hires, the guys who seem to be having more of an effect on the diamond in Barfield and Bannister do seem pretty cool. And I think that's a fair point. I think that getting someone from the Diamondbacks right now is a great hire. And, you know, you don't want to get too caught up in the world stuff, but it's certainly just kind of that thing that's like, you know, in everyone, the back of everyone's minds, you know, like, oh, you know, the White Sox going to keep doing stuff like this. You know, are they going to sign these guys? So something to monitor. But yeah, definitely. I think it cannot be understated you know, how how good Bannister and Barfield would seem to be, both from a vision point of view and what they bring to the table point of view. I think in terms of what a vision looks like for Chris Getz, I think will ultimately these first few years will ultimately be decided by, I think we're all kind of talking about it. Did you make the right call? Number one, in bringing Getz back, if you had the decision, or excuse me, in bringing Rafal back, if you had the choice to remove Rafal and you didn't take it, was that the right choice? And if you didn't have the choice, and let's just say Ryan Struff said, nope, we have to keep Rafal, then you have to wonder, are you correct in your choice to place as much faith in him, place as much empowerment into his hands to make these sort of hires, um, to bring it, let's see what he brings in this offseason. I'm not even going to, they who shall not be named. Um, what ends up happening this offseason, and we'll say a lot about how much Grafal is empowered, and for better or for worse, Getz will eventually have to answer to that. Um, but that is still far, far down the line, still things to come, hopefully some very good things coming from that. I do want to take a look at some of the play on the field, things more in the here and now as we come towards the end of the season, because both of you wrote really, really good articles recently that kind of complemented each other, which is why I think it was perfect that you're both on this episode, in terms of how some key players have performed, both positively and negatively, what that may mean moving forward, and the confidence you might place in these players moving forward. Tim, I'll start with you. Talk us through your thoughts in developing your article of taking a look at these core guys and saying, hey, how confident am I in these guys? Or how confident should we be as fans? Right. Yeah, you know, it really came from the perspective of with how crappy the season has gone, you know, a lot of fans, including myself, 
I've not been checking into the games. Um, you know, maybe looking at a few box scores, maybe watching a few innings here and there. Um, but the fact of the matter is they do still matter, right? And and if you want the White Sox to be good in 2025, then some of that does need to come from people who are on the team right now, looking at the contracts that they have and the fact that of these core pieces, they're all pretty much expected to be here in 2025 with the exception of Anderson. So I, I didn't write, I did not write about Anderson, um, but Moncada, Robert Jimenez, Kopech, Seas, um, you know, these guys, you know, we're going to need them unless you want to construct an entirely new team by 2025. Uh, and so, you know, you look into it and unfortunately it hasn't been going great. Um, there's some bright spots, right? So Moncada has been better. Uh, it honestly, it hasn't been the most amazing second half in, in the whole world, but it was, it was big progress for him. Right. So, uh, he, he's up to a, a 0.9 fan graphs wins above replacement, at least at the, the timing of the article, um, and a 95 WRC plus, I think that might've gone down in the past couple of days. I think he had a couple over, over threes, over fours, but, um, you know, it's something, and so, you know, especially third base, I don't know who would, would come up from the organization and, and take over that spot. I mean, you have Brian Ramos, right? But, um, you know, the, he's no sure thing. He's still in double A, right? So it'd be nice if the Sox could rely on Moncada to be there and then you, you could potentially move Ramos over to second or something like that. You know, we'll see. Um, but, uh, yeah, and then Robert's been really good and that's nice. But the other guys... You know, I'm sure sure we'll delve into it too. Um, Jimenez, eh. Kopech, really bad. Seas, eh. He had a nice start yesterday, which is good. Um, so you know, we can dive into each player as, as you guys potentially want. But um, and Andrew Vaughn too, of course, has not been anything special. So across the board, it's just it's just not looking great. Um, so that's that's tough. It's the icing on the cake. You know, your choice um, to not include Tim Anderson kind of goes along with. Uh, the crap I meant to give Nick earlier, but certainly after editing last week's podcast, I was shocked with how easily you guys came across with the notion that you would bring Anderson back. That is uh, fodder for a later episode. I want to get to your thoughts, Nick, because you mentioned three of the same players um, that Tim did in his article regarding sort of the confidence levels. And you looked at it from the perspective of, Hey, here are some good things. Here are some not so good things. I guess my biggest question for you is why these three specific call outs in terms of looking towards the developments for next season? Yeah, I mean, really, it's more just I from the White House things that I've been watching over the last couple of months, I feel like people aren't really watching, which is fine. I'm not blaming nor am I pretending like I watch every single game anymore. But there are still some trends that I felt like that have kind of developed over that time that aren't being talked about as much as maybe they should or or they would be if the White Sox were more popular right now. So that's kind of why I wrote it. And yeah, it, it did end up complimenting Tim's pretty nicely, just in that I was talking more about stuff that has occurred over the last typically month or two specifically. And the, the three players that I mentioned were Moncada, Robert, and Jimenez. And like you said, Jordan, it was good and bad. Kind of goes well too with him about like who should we be confident about going forward. Because with Moncada, my point was more, yes, he's been playing well over the last month and a half or so, but it's not one of those fluky Babbitt-driven streaks either, which is not to say that the Babbitt isn't 
high. It was like 400 or something last I checked over that stretch. But the underlying metrics were still very good too in terms of how hard he's hitting the ball and how he cut down on the strikeouts. The only problem is that he isn't walking as much as usual. But when he has the uptick in home runs, you can live with that. So that was kind of my point there. I think some people were just writing it off as like, oh, he has these hot streaks all the time. But this one I thought was actually legit. And I think it's really just that he's healthy now. And to kind of go back to Tim's point, or what Tim was talking about more, it's when you talk about whether you can trust Moncada going forward, it, it really, to me, comes down to not can you trust him as a player, but rather can you trust him to be healthy? Because when he's healthy and on the field, he's pretty good. It's just a matter of him either being off the field or sometimes you yeah, have like a few weeks here and there where he's playing in the games, but he's clearly not himself. And at that point, I don't even know why he's playing because he's not really providing any value. So that was one thing. And then the other two were a lot quicker, really, just for Eloy Jimenez. It was that he has been surprisingly bad the last couple of months in particular. So his overall season has just been like fine at best. Uh, and for a DH, probably not very good. So that was really what I was going at there. And then for Robert, it was just that there's, because of how bad he was in the last few weeks of April, I feel like he has this um, sort of stigma around him that he's this inconsistent player. And while I don't know if I would call him consistent necessarily, I don't think in- inconsistent is accurate either. And I kind of just went through and showed that his OPS every month is above 800, aside from April and September. And of course, September is currently happening. So who knows how that'll end. So I wouldn't say that he's inconsistent, just more so that he'll have like a week here and there where he's striking out all the time. But that's okay because the overall ebbs and flows are still very high. And it's not even the argument I would make earlier, right? Say, oh, at the end of the season, his numbers will be good. It's more so that even month to month, his numbers are good. It's just that he'll have an 800 OPS one month and an 1100 OPS the next month. And it's like, well, those are both very good. So it's hard to hard to nitpick there. So for him, it's really just about kind of like with Moncada, can he stay healthy? Because um, even when Robert is not 100%, he still kind of provides more value than Moncada just with playing center field and, you know, running into a home run even when he's not right. I think for all of these guys, um, you both mentioned Moncada, and I want to briefly focus there because I think you both kind of touched on the idea, and he's been the one Sox fans have brought up the most because he's had such a good September. And I've basically said it's there. A lot of people are willing to chalk it up to just being the equivalent of padding stats and garbage time in football. Um, and basically just saying, Hey, games don't matter. He's just padding his stats right now. Nick, I, it doesn't seem like you buy into that. And Tim, it, are you someone that buys into that either? No. Um, it, you know, this would be the, I think you said it on Twitter, Jordan. I think you said it perfectly. This would be, the perfect time for him to be lazy to not seem to care to um just sort of mail it in right because no one's watching like nobody um you know what's happening right now the team has has, you know has evidently lost some some luster some confidence um vibes are low and so i think it takes a sort of special you know continued determination to be able to go out there and play well in such a terrible situation um, you know, again, I, I don't know if, if a few weeks, one month of play is indicative of the future. Hopefully it is, but, but I, I wouldn't say that this is some sort of garbage time thing. I also don't entirely even really know where, where that sentiment comes from. I mean, in 2021, which was the year the Sox were very good, he was pretty good that year. He had a 120 WRC plus he was, um, he had 4.0 F4. And so, 
that that's the definition of non-garbage time, right? The playoff run, the, the, the year that you needed him to be good. He was pretty good. Um, and if I remember in that series against the Astros, he got pretty unlucky at a couple hard hit balls. Um, so yeah, it just seems like a random narrative that people are just making up to hate on him, which, you know, I understand he had a terrible year in 2022, a not so good year overall this year. I understand why you might not, not like him overall, but you know, I, I think hating on what he's done the past few weeks and trying to explain it away is some garbage time fad just, it doesn't really have any, you know, backing to it. I think it's just something people say to, uh, to just be angry. I think it, I think it's such a dangerous sentiment too. It's like, oh, the players play well when the games don't count. Well, these games haven't counted since like June and Luis Robert has played pretty well since then. So is he just pats or sat padding this entire year? Like, I think it's such a dangerous sentiment to be like, guys only perform well when the games don't matter. These games have not mattered for this team if we're being generous since the All-Star break. And Robert has been just as good, if not better, Nick, as you alluded to, in the second half of this season it's for me it's such 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 a dangerous narrative to turn around and be like eh, it's just because n- nothing matters it's like no there are still guys on other teams fighting for jobs there are still guys on this team fighting for jobs these matter to the players they might not matter to the overall wins and losses obviously but they still matter to these players i i found that to be such a dangerous narrative in terms of what how you evaluate some players um one other player that you had in common in terms of how you picked out some struggles for them was Eloy Jimenez. Nick, what do you attribute some of his struggles to this season? I mean, it's hard to say health because he's been fairly healthy this year. And then what does a path towards a turnaround in 2024 for him look like, assuming he's still with the White Sox? Yeah, it's tough because I mean, you mentioned health, but I think I gave him credit in the article like he's actually aside from the appendectomy which like you can you can't blame him for that anyway like he's actually been very healthy this year so that's you know the feather in his cap that's that's new for him but i mean really it's his his eternal problem is is launch angle he always is too much of a ground ball hitter you can live with that when he's still connecting and hitting home runs and doubles every now and then but this year that's not happening as often like last year his launch angle was only about seven and a half degrees but he still put up like 144 WRC plus when he was healthy. Like he was a beast last year. This year, it's about league average. Last I checked, like 101, 102. And his launch angle is down to 5.5 degrees. So that's really all it comes down to for me. It's, it's that simple. Yes, he needs to be, or not needs to be. Yes, he should be more disciplined at the plate. It would help if he took more walks. But he's not like a terrible uh, walk to strikeout guy. Like it's not great, but he's not it's better than like someone like Luis Robert, even for example. So for me, it just all comes down to that. I don't know if that is a discipline issue in itself, because you could argue that, you know, if he gets into pitcher's count, he's more likely to just try to make contact rather than hit the ball, you know, barrel it up. Or you could argue it's a swing plane issue. I mean, it's the same debate we've been having about him for three, four years now. It's just, it's frustrating because he was so good last year. And I really thought that it was, him turning a page and that for the next, you know, five or seven years, he would be like a Jordan Alvarez like hitter when he's healthy. It just, it's just not happening. And we have a new hitting coach and new hitting staff here. So I don't know if it, I can't, I'm not blaming them. I'm just saying that clearly they haven't helped him with this particular issue, but I, that's all it is for me is launch angle. Right. And, and I'm a big Eloy guy. I have been. And so this was tough because like you said, 
you know, a lot of people didn't realize it got caught up in the, you know, the struggles last year, but Jimenez was one of the best hitters in baseball for the entire second half last season. And that was largely coinciding with moving to DH. And this year he's been pretty much only a DH. And so you felt like all the right ingredients were coming together. And this year he has been healthy. And yet it's just been a painfully average season, right? Which is not what you want from a guy you're going to be paying a good amount of money to at the DH position, right? Having a 100, you know, WRC plus, you know, having a league average offensive output at that spot is just not what you want. And honestly, I... I don't know what to explain it other than what I think I'm going to call White Sox syndrome now, which is where you have a good, talented player just not be that good for seemingly no reason, right? Um, I mean, you have you had C's be absolutely amazing last year, and he's been average this year, maybe a little above average. Um, and, you know, you can't even look at, like, any one thing. You can't look at any sort of injury. It's like, all right, I guess he just kind of took a step back. Kopech wasn't great last year, but – his underlying numbers were were pretty fair, um, you know, FIP and things like that. He completely awful this year. We seen you know we seen it happen to Mankata at times, um, and yeah, just you know, talented guys just like for no reason, just just you know, taking a step back and and not getting to to where we know they can be. And that's the thing with him is it wasn't just like a few week hot stretch. You know, he was really good for the entire second half last year. Um, there was uh, in 2020 for 60 games, he was very, very good. And yeah, you know, you, you just don't really know what's going on. But um, yeah, he, he's got to prove something because, you know, there's there's some guys who can hit, you know, maybe can't feel, but there's some guys who can hit in the minor leagues. And, you know, we'll, we'll see what the next few years will look like. But that's disappointing. I'm going to largely stereotype with this answer. When I watch Jimenez's swing, I, I do completely agree with you, Nick. I see the swing that like all the old school baseball, play, like the Alex Rodriguez, when he gets on TV, like the swing down idea that like all of these famous sluggers claim works, but none of them used. I think both Frank Thomas and Alex Rodriguez have been proponents of a swing like a menaces where it's essentially swing down on the ball and then you'll create loft by some voodoo magic beyond that. It's a tactic neither Rodriguez nor Thomas employed in their personal swings, and it's certainly not one that's working in Jimenez's. I 100% agree with you, Nick. It's a swing plane issue that, or it's launch angle issue that draws back to the swing plane issue. Uh, if he looks like he's not swinging, he looks like he's swinging down on a ball for a player who has way too much power to be swinging down on a ball. I don't know where he's getting the advice from. I'm wondering why a new hitting coach from an organization that leads major league baseball in home runs this season hasn't made that change yet with him. Um, I think I, he was the first candidate. I think if you look through this roster of, Hey, someone with an outside perspective um, coming in and maybe making a change to a player. I think he was number one for me because I thought it was, it's been such a clear issue. And it, and it still persists, and it's that same sort of swing down on the ball, and you're going to create loft by doing that. I don't know how that magic works, but it's clearly not working in Jimenez's case. And if some whoever taps into that, whether it's the White Sox or it's a team that he gets traded to this offseason, if the White Sox explore that route, is going to be very, very happy that they unlock that. 
because it's there. It's just incredibly frustrating. I think you both kind of said the path to the turnaround is hitting like he has previously. If you can't get to that point, you're going to be left looking for a new DH because 100 WRC plus out of a DH, especially in the American League, is just not going to work. On the flip side of all of this, we have someone like Luis Robert, who's the last player I want to touch on with you. Tim, is there another level to Luis Robert's game, first and foremost? And secondly, you know, given the White Sox syndrome that you mentioned, what does he have to do to repeat or come close to repeating his 2023 season next year? And are there concerns for you that, you know, it doesn't seem like any White Sox player has put together multiple strong seasons in a row. Is there concern for you that Robert may just be the next victim in this case? I know I'm playing devil's advocate, but I think it's at least worthy of a question. There is, but only because I've become accustomed to pain and suffering with the White Sox. Uh, so I just have to, I have to leave room for that, right? You know, I, I can't, can't sit here and say with 100% certainty that, you know, something's going to go well, something's going to go according to plan. But as Nick mentioned, for in any realistic scenario, he's been very consistent this year. And, and his floor as a hitter is just so high because of his swing, the fact that he's generating a lot of these pulled fly balls that turn into home runs. It seems like his floor is so high that even with such an awful walk rate, that there's no reason he can't at least get to an 850 or, you know, we'll say at least 830 OPS every year, you know, pair that with good defense. And that's a really good player in center field. So I'll say it's possible only because I, I feel like I'm obl- obligated to. Um, but yeah, I think it's been a consistent year and I would expect him to have another very good year as long as he stays healthy. That's another thing is he stayed healthy this year. Uh, I think it was Scott Merkin said something about Robert had a goal to play 150 games and he's on track to do so right now. He's almost there. And so, yeah, because he, he's, he has the right idea at the plate of hitting balls hard, uh, doing the right swing and, and pulling them to left field and generating a lot of home runs that way. You know, I think, I think he should be good. And now, and then the question of in terms of if he can unlock another level, he certainly can. I mean, you see that walk rate and it's like, well, if this guy could be a little more patient, at the plate, I mean, you could have a generational superstar on your hands, you know, right there. This has been a, a star season, right? A top 10 season. But, you know, that next level is there because of the way he does hit the ball when he makes contact. And if he can just make contact at the right times, take walks at the other times, he absolutely has that level. You know, he hasn't shown us that. It's not like in the second half or anything. He started to walk more. I think it's actually been less. But, um, you know, it's something that I'm sure – Anybody looking at his game and this coaching staff will say, hey, this is the one thing you can improve. Let's do our best to improve that this offseason. I mean, it feels like it's the last frontier with them. Might as well just put all your efforts into that, see if you can get anything out of it. Guys have made that type of change before. He's 26, so he's getting a little older, but it's not too old, I would say, to make that type of change. So it's possible. Don't know how, how realistic it is, but it's there for the taking. Yeah, I think for sure play discipline is one area where he could improve. And also in terms of just whether he has another level to his game, we kind of saw that in uh, 2021 when he came back after his injury in August and September, just in the sense that, no, he wasn't walking, but he was kind of his current Luis Robert. He was playing great defense and hitting home runs, but he also was hitting like 320. I'm not sure how sustainable that is in the long run, considering that, like we said, he wasn't walking and was still striking out a decent amount. But at the same time, we've seen him not just hit for this kind of power and play the defense he plays, but also hit for a high average. So 
I would like to see that, but I think more realistically, what I would like to see from him next year, assuming he can stay healthy doing it. I mean, he just hurt his knee on Sunday in Boston doing this, but it'll be nice to see the stolen bases and just aggressive base running back up the way that we thought we'd see when he was a younger prospect. So he still has stolen 20 bases this year, which is good. But in this new era of the disengagement rules and whatnot, we're seeing guys steal like 60, 70 bases. I'm not saying he should be doing that, but there are not many players in baseball who are faster than him. And I mean, I know that's not all that goes into stolen bases, but clearly he's good enough to do it somewhat frequently. So I don't see why Luis Robert can't have, say, a 40-40 season. Like, I know it's a really lofty goal, but he's the exact kind of player that you think of when you think of that kind of stat. So that's something I'd like to see from him is, yes, play discipline, of course, but even just something that he already does, I would just see it more often, like stealing bases. I'm just going to make sure that the headline of this reads, Nick will not be satisfied with Luis Robert until he steals 60 or 70 bases in a season. Uh, (laughs) It's time for someone else to get crap for Robert for a change. (laughs) <laughs> thank you <laughs> yeah no thank you i need some help um tim i want to thank you again uh for joining this week and stepping in for duke before we let you go uh tell the people where they can find you on social media sure uh best idea is always twitter uh at tim the moran that's m-o-r-a-n uh try to keep up the socks content in the off season you might see some sad tweets about Notre Dame or the Bears in there, but we don't need to talk about that. And there's, there's enough sports misery right now. So yeah, Tim, Tim, the Moran on Twitter, find me on there. Folks, Tim Moran, Saxon 35th senior contributor. Thanks for joining us, buddy. Now, while there still may be six games left in this miserable season, the minor league season came to an end for the White Sox on Sunday. And I can think of no one better than our own Michael Suero to help us break down the season on the farm. He is indeed our second special guest of this episode, and he joins us right now. Joining us now is our minor league expert, Michael Suero, to discuss all things White Sox farm system. Michael, how are you, buddy? I'm doing all right, Jordan. You know, uh, baseball season's been a bummer, so I'm thrilled to be in football season now. Um, if you're uh, following me on Twitter, you probably know I'm a huge Packers fan, so it's been good for me uh, these past couple weeks. It's uh, good to know that Aaron Rodgers uh, signed over ownership to a competent quarterback of the, for the Chicago Bears, so I, I'm doing all right over here, bud. Sunday was just so miserable <laughs> for Rodgers. I'm like... I like. I've said it before. Football does not bother me that much, but just watching the Bears game today was miserable. And then I saw the Packers highlights um, mid game, and it's like, yeah, yeah, this is this is this is not good. If you're a diehard Bears fan, I feel bad for those guys. I made fun of Duke at the top of the episode. I feel bad for him. Um, but that is not what we are here to talk about. Thankfully, <laughs> what we are here to talk about is the end of the minor league season for the White Sox. They came uh, it came to a close on Sunday with a victory, which is a very nice thing. However, uh, it was one of few for the organization as a whole this year. Obviously, you don't want to read too much into wins and losses in terms of um, the minor league system. But if you look at it, the Dash and Cannonballers finished around 500, I believe, just a game or two over. Uh, the Barons and Knights took after their major league affiliate in terms of win-loss record. As a whole, stepping back from all of that, 
how do you assess this season for the White Sox system relative to both previous seasons, as well as expectations from you or from the uh, organization as a whole for 2023? Yeah, I mean, you hit it on the head. Like, we, we shouldn't be taking wins and losses too much into account for minor league baseball because, I mean, we're, we're really looking at a lot of times specific players' development and, you know, Sometimes, you know, these minor league teams as a whole may not be super strong, but they will have a couple players that you are keeping an eye on that actually have a shot to make you know, the major league team at some point. But overall, I mean, though it's, you know, the White Sox season hasn't been a huge success, but this minor league season, to me, I think has been a big success for the White Sox. I think, you know, you can't look at the progress they've made and not say that they're at least trending upwards in terms of their farm system this year. I mean, just look at where we were coming into the season. We only had, we had one top 100 prospect in Colson Montgomery, and we were widely regarded as having one of the bottom or five worst farm systems in the league. And since then, we've had some positive developments and, you know, we have bolstered our farm system, you know, due to the lack of success at the major league level and, you know, selling at the deadline. But because of that, you know, our farm system's probably, you know, it's not top 10 or anything, but it's closer to middle of the pack, which is a massive upgrade for uh, where we were at, you know, before the season started and early on in the season. You know, we've had good developments from specific players. We brought in some new talent that's really, you know, rejuvenated the system. So, I mean, it it's trending upwards and I'm really excited about where our system's at right now. So Michael, of course, we all know about, you know, like Colson Montgomery and Noah Schultz type players, but I was just curious if you could hit on a few standout performers this year that maybe haven't gotten the recognition they deserve, whether that's someone who's knocking on the door of the major leagues or even people in the lower levels. Yeah. So, um, first and foremost, I, I've talked about him on the podcast before. Nick, I know you're a big fan of him, but Wilfred Varis to me is one of the biggest bright spots of this farm system. You know, just it, it's a real, you know, testament to the player development that the White Sox have worked on this season. I mean, he's had a, a fantastic 2023 season. You know, he was hitting well in high A as a, as a 20 year old, which is, you know, still young for that level. Uh, but he was hitting so well that they called him up to double A and he actually got better as the season went on, which is crazy to me. Like he's already young for the level he was at. He gets promoted. He's even younger for the level he's at. And he actually performs even better in a more pitcher friendly environment too. So just all the factors there, like Wolford Varis's season has been, I think a fantastic development. He's shown good bat to ball skills he he's still working on tapping into his raw power, but it's starting to show up a little bit more. And he when he connects on the ball, it is going to go far. So it's real exciting to see when he really connects with the ball. Um, he's still a little too aggressive at the plate, so you know that's something that he still has to work on. But overall, what he's done at the plate has just been fantastic. And then defensively, this is a guy who he didn't really have a position this time last year. He was going a little bit back and forth between first base and third base wasn't really showing, you know, any signs of life at either. And he was looking more like a DH prospect over the off season. He, he, he decided, or they, the white Sox decided to give him a shot in the outfield and he works on his craft out there. And 
you know, he's not going to win any gold gloves out there, but he, he looks like he can at least handle a corner outfield spot now. So that is just another huge development for him. You know, I really, you really have to give him credit for the work that he's put in. And he's, you know, one of, if not my, you know, MVP of this minor league season um, for the White Sox, you know, partially because the top prospects were injured for a lot of the season, but his full season's season's worth of work it was just, I think, fantastic. And then if you want to touch on another one, Terrell Tatum is another one who I think deserves a lot of recognition for what he's done this season. You know, he had a fantastic uh, stint in high A Winston-Salem. He was a little older for the for the level. He's about 24, so it was to be expected that he was going to hit well against that pit level of pitching. But still, I mean, he walked over 20% of the time. He he stole over 30 bases in like half a season uh, down there and just looked fantastic. And then he got called up to double A where he, his, you know, his bat to ball skills are, do need a little bit of work. He does, you know, swing and miss a little bit. And you, know, you can tell that, you know, double uh, A pitching was a little more of a, you know, of a challenge for him. But overall, he still had success at that level. Still, walk, still had a 15% walk rate. Stole another 15 bags. I mean, his on-base skills are phenomenal. He, you know, and we already know that Jor- that uh, Jordan's going to be a big fan of his eventually. I've been thinking that the entire time you've been talking here, Michael. I was like, I, I found my new guy. Awesome. I'm sure that was music to your ears. <laughs> I mean, in, with his speed, like it's great that he gets on base too because he makes an impact on the base paths he's also very good defensively he could you know at the very least he could be a fourth outfielder at the ML- at the mlb level um so you know those two i think are my biggest positives developmentally um coming from this season i think both both Varis and tatum have shown a lot this year and you know they're definitely putting themselves in the future plans for the white Sox. Yeah, nearly 50 uh, stolen bases for Tatum. So he's only 10 away from being successful in terms of Nick Gower's evaluation. Um, those who listen to the first half of this podcast know exactly what I'm talking like, about. You're, anyway. you're really going to make that a thing now? <laughs> <An off-hand comment? laughs> yes, I am going to make it a thing. You're in trouble. I'm right. going to be uh, sort of the bad news guy, I guess, on the other side of things. There are always going to be guys that you know had, had high expectations for that you didn't exactly reach or you're really concerned about their futures in, in the in uh, the system. Are there any of those guys who had those types of years for the White Sox guys that, you know, you're really going to need to see bounce backs from next season to cement any sort of potential future with the club? Yeah. I mean, you know, like I said, it's been a good season, but we did have a couple of those as well. Um, you know, first of all, Sean Burke, I think is a guy that we all had some decent expectations for coming into the season. You know, MLB pipeline had him as one of our top five prospects coming into the season. He made it all the way to AAA in his first minor league season after getting drafted. Um, you know, I think a lot of people thought that he's a guy that we could potentially see pitch some meaningful innings at the major league level this year. Fortunately, you know, he wasn't able to log a ton of innings this year because of some injuries. And when he was on the mound, his, you know, control was just out of whack. You know, he was, I think he averaged over six and a half walks per nine innings. It was, you know, not a great look for him when he was on the mound. You know, he's still a talented pitcher. And there's a reason he was a third round pick. There's a reason that he moved through the system so quickly. So, 
you know, getting healthy for the 2024 season, I think he could definitely bounce back. But we're definitely going to need to see him not only stay on the mound, but be more effective when he is on the mound next year. And uh, and then one more guy that I'll touch on right now is a um, guy that a lot of talent evaluators thought was going to have a lot more success early on. Um, granted, he's only in the complex leagues, but Eric Hernandez, uh, a lot of people remember him. He was the second highest rated international prospect in 2022 after Oscar Colas that we signed. We signed him for about a million dollar signing bonus, and he'd even gotten some comparisons to Juan Soto in terms of his hitting ability. And while those were always lofty expectations, you know, he was viewed as a guy who could be a plus hitter uh, through throughout the minor league levels and develop into a starting caliber outfielder eventually. Unfortunately, that just really has not happened. I mean, this year has been kind of a train wreck for him. He's hit, you know, in the his batting average was in the 100s. I think his OPS was below 500. Um, I know he he was able to draw a decent amount of walks, so I mean he was able to get on base somewhat. But you know the hit tool just has not been as advertised, and you know from you know a lot of scouting uh, evaluators don't think that he's going to be anything more than a decent left fielder maybe because he doesn't have the strongest arm he's got some range but he's probably going to be you know relegated to left field duties so if he's gonna if that's where he's gonna end up long term then he really needs to improve with his bat so unfortunately he's someone that's going to need to turn things around now he's only 18 years old so there's plenty of time for him to turn things around you know there's plenty of you know high upside international prospects that started out slow and then eventually turned their careers around. So I'm not going to, you know, write him off just yet, but I think next year is going to be a big year for him in terms of staying relevant within the White Sox system. It's funny when we talk minor league guys, when you have this whole long spiel about a player like Hernandez and you're like, but he's also only 18. It's, it's, it, the state of Major League Baseball in terms of sort of the farm systems is wild to me at times. And I think that's a great mm-hmm. reminder of it. It's like, yeah, he's at down here, but he's 18. It's probably okay for now. Uh, like you mentioned, it's like it's such a weird state of minor league baseball. It really is. And every player has a different timeline, too. So you can never just write someone off right away. I mean, we have guys this year that have broken out. And, you know, who spent the first couple of seasons just really struggling. Every team has those guys. So it's not, again, it's just not something to get too worried about yet, but it is something that we do have to monitor. Now, the White Sox will have the opportunity to take an extended look at some of their guys. The The minor league season isn't technically over just yet for some players. Mm-hmm. That is where the Arizona Fall League comes into play, where teams send some of their either top prospects or guys they want to see a little bit more throughout the season for the months of October and part of November, the White Sox sending eight players to the Arizona fall league this year, including some of our favorites, Colson Montgomery, Brian Ramos, everybody's favorite, Jake eater, who I feel horribly for um, just as a quick aside, Michael, give us a rundown of what you're hoping to see for the White Sox players who are involved in the AFL throughout this AFL season. Yeah, well, first of all, I feel just as bad for Jake Eater. He is in a terrible spot right now. I mean, he's coming off a long-term injury. 
really this year is not meant for him to produce results. It's just meant for him to get innings under his belt. And every time Jake Berger hits a home run for the Marlins, I see 20 tweets talk about, oh, well, Jake Eater's got a 60 area right now. Like, give it some time, please, everyone. <laughs> but to your actual question, sorry, I just had to get that out of my system. <laughs> to your actual question, um, and actually kind of goes along with what I just said about Jake Eater. The, 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 for a lot of these guys, the, Air, the Arizona Fall League is really just to get log more playtime. I mean, look at the top guys that we're sending to the Fall League. You got, like you said, Colson Montgomery, Brian Ramos. Both those guys are guys who started the season injured and missed significant um, time, you know, time in the, of the season to start out the year. Jake Eater's another one. He missed a significant portion of the 2023 minor league season to start out because he was recovering from Tommy John surgery, had another injury that delayed his start. So really, that's what I'm looking for for the AFL, for at least those guys, is just you know getting time under the belt. You know They're there because they did not get a full season's worth of playtime, and this is to kind of make up for that. Now, you know, if we want to dig a little deeper, Colson Montgomery, for one, you know, we, we all know Colson Montgomery is an elite prospect. Everyone you know, who pays any attention to minor league baseball knows he's one of the top 20 prospects in all baseball. I mean, he, he didn't light the world on fire in double A, so I'd like to see him, you know, make some more consistent contact. You know, his batting average is only about 240 in double A. I mean, he still had over 800 OPS, so it was perfectly fine. And he's walking at elite rates, but I'd like to see him, you know, connect a little more. And he also just hasn't shown the power that he's capable of. So, I mean, that'd be nice if we saw some of that, but I'm not overly concerned about that for him in the fall league. Um, you know, Jake Eater, again, same thing. Just, I just want to see him pitch. I just want him to log some innings so that he can, to help him get ready for the 2024 season when I'm actually going to be paying attention to his results. And, um, and Brian Ramos is another one. Um, I'm not overly concerned with how he produces, although I will say for Ramos, he's a guy who a lot of White Sox fans get upset that he isn't considered more for top hundred lists. But I think the reason for that is while he shows in spurts, the type of impactful hitter he can be, he's, still kind of streaky. He can never do that for a you know a full season's worth of time. You know, his his WRC plus, you know, for a two week stretch could be, you know, 160, but overall it's always, you know, just a tick above a hundred. So he's still being an above average hitter, but he shows more in spurts than he does consistently how impactful he can be. So I'd like to see him put together a full stretch in the Arizona Fall League of you know the type of hitter he can be. Again, I'm not going to, you know, knock it on him if he doesn't just wow everyone, but that is something I would like to see. And then just one more guy I wanted to mention for this is uh, Josemir Cousin, who he's another guy who he's probably just there to get more innings, but he's probably not a name that a lot of Sox fans are familiar with. So we picked him up in April or May, and he was actually signed out of Cuba, or he, he's never pitched with any affiliate in the MLB. But he wasn't technically an international signing because he was too old to technically qualify for like the international signing pool. So we signed him to just a regular minor league free agent contract. 
And he, you know, in his first season with us, he, he only made 15 starts, but he got all the way up to double A. And he's a guy that the White Sox could be potentially looking at in the near future as some starting pitching depth. So he's a guy that I'm curious to watch a little bit more because, again, he's not a guy that a lot of fans are going to be familiar with, but I wouldn't be shocked if he's a surprise call-up that we see potentially next year. I mean, he's already 25 years old. He's already he, – he made his debut in double-A this year. I wouldn't be surprised if he started out in triple-A next year. So he's just, just another one to keep an eye on. Um, going forward because he is a guy that we could potentially see at the major league level relatively soon. Yeah, we're we'll very interested to watch that just because I one thing with the Arizona Fall League is there's so many player talented players in the roster. So I'm always curious just to see how the playing time shakes out. And some guys have, you know, really good stretches in the fall league and they shoot up the boards and others don't. But at the end of the day, I think you put it best when you say it's really just about the reps and getting the experience for all these guys. So yeah, we'll be looking for that for sure. And just one more question for you, Michael, before we let you go, is we're curious, just we talk a lot about on this podcast about the front office, including on this episode, we talked about the new hires like Josh Barfield from the Diamondbacks. So when you talk more about the minor league side of things, we were wondering who you would see as a good fit for the next farm director for the White Sox. Yeah, so um, one name that I'm actually keeping my eye on is um, a guy that has direct connections to uh, Barfield, and that's Matt Grabowski. He's actually the um, assistant director of player development for the Diamondbacks. So he worked right under uh, Barfield with the Diamondbacks. Um, you know, I, I like what that team has done in terms of player development. I mean, they developed Corbin Carroll. <laughs> I think that's all you need to know about that front office. I mean, they, he's one of the most dynamic players in baseball right now shoeing for rookie of the year they've done some good work with other prospects as well and he's just a guy that has a direct connection to barfield so i mean he he might get an offer to take barfield's old spot with um as you know the head of head of the farm system for the diamondbacks but i would not be surprised if uh they were pushing to bring him over to the white Sox as well um and if that doesn't happen i i'm not gonna give you a specific name but Really, anyone who was involved in player development for the Baltimore Orioles, I'd be fine with, honestly. They have done a really good job at developing talent, and sure, they've just had an influx of talented players come into their system, but they're also making sure that those talented players develop into what they can be, which is more than what the White Sox have done in recent years. I mean, Adley Rutschman, I mean, the, the day he was called up, he already looked like he was a five-year veteran behind and at the plate. So I mean, he what they did to get him ready for his major league debut was phenomenal. I mean, Gunnar Henderson wasn't, he was a second round pick. So, I mean, he was, you know, he had some pedigree, but he wasn't this elite level prospect that they drafted. They developed him into what he is now, which is another damn good player. And they, they've done that with multiple prospects. They got a bunch that are close to MLB ready that have just been rising up the ranks. Um, so they've done a fantastic job with their player development. Um, I think the director of player development, his, so his name is Matt Blood. He's done a phenomenal job over there. If we can somehow get him to come over to the White Sox, I'd be, I'd love that. I don't see that happening though. So, you know, someone that works directly under him, I think, you know, some of his top assistants, I think would be good candidates for that job. Yeah, the strategy of 
try and hire a guy from an organization that does good things is oft used by a lot of teams, not named the White Sox. So I, it would be a, a very nice sight to see, uh, Michael, in, in terms of some of these names that you mentioned, just these organizations you mentioned. Yeah, it makes sense. Go to Arizona, go to Baltimore, find their best guys. I, I don't necessarily think that's ever a bad strategy. But as we let you go, you're basically a regular here. So I, most people who listen to this know where to find you. But for the new listeners, uh, let them know where they can find you on social media. Yeah, so I'm. you can find me at Twitter. Uh, my handle is at msuero. Uh, first initial, last name. It's pretty easy, although people butcher my last name all the time. So if you can't figure it out, I won't hold it against you. Um, That's a shot at Duke, by the way. <laughs> I get to host one time. I'm having fun with this. Oh, I, I'll never get over that. Uh, but all, ju- also, just a fair warning, if you are going to follow me on Twitter, I, like I said at the top of this uh, interview, I'm a massive Packer fan, so get ready to uh, watch me rub it into Bears fans. I've been hearing it from you guys all, se- all off-season about how Jordan Love was a bum and that the Bears were going to run the division now. So, um, yeah, time to pay the piper. <laughs> yeah, I uh, like I said, for those diehard Bears fans, um, maybe wait until, like, March to start following Michael. Um, but, Michael, always appreciate having you on, buddy. Truly, always really, really good insights. Uh, so thank you for joining us as the minor league season ends. Yep, thank you for having me. Well, folks, that's going to do it for episode 32 of the Socks on 35th podcast. I want to thank both Tim Moran and Michael Suero for joining us this week to break down the team. They really do provide some awesome insights, so please make sure to follow them on social media. As we close out, make sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to your podcast. And if you'd like, leave a five-star review and tell Joe Binder that I deserve a raise. Also, make sure to follow us at Socks on 35th on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and stay tuned into our website all year at SocksOn35th.com. For Nick Gower, this is Jordan Lazowski signing off for now. We'll be back next week to cover the final week of 2023 baseball for the Chicago White Sox. And for those in Chicago, I know you'll be back to listen next week. I mean, what else are you going to do? Watch the Bears? Thanks for the support, and go White Sox. Go Sox, and if you're leaving a five-star review, you can mention that Nick also would like a raise. Thanks. (laughs) Raises for everybody. (laughs) Thanks, folks.